Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're nearing two months since Biden entered office. So where's the media at now? Today, I'm joined by Lawrence Jones of Fox News and Fox Nation. This is episode 14. From running for office and working with James O'Keefe just out of high school, to what he's learned talking to Americans of all political persuasions, we start with Fox News' place in today's media ecosystem. I want to start with uh, your current work, which is at at Fox News. So uh, you uh, joined Fox News October of 2019. Um, you're doing a lot with uh, with Fox News, the network, and with Fox Nation. I want to get to all of that, but I, I want to start with. I was looking around to some of the headlines about that people write about Fox News, and uh, one stuck out. This was from Vox. One day encapsulated everything that's wrong with Fox News, and my God, it was the longest article I've ever seen. And there's a lot that was wrong with Fox news according to this article that day uh you were involved in it uh, but but what do you think of the way the rest of the media treats the network that you're currently at um you know i think most of them live in a silo um they don't go out and communicate with the majority of the country so you know a lot of them are operatives already in the democratic party they don't go out and say it but you know, they're at parties and everything. They want to be liked by Hollywood. They want to be invited to all of the special events. And so when you have Fox News, which is the lone voice that is speaking up for that middle America, uh, people from all around the country, then I understand why it's a little weird for them. And also part of this is just by nature of Fox being number one, everyone hates us as a result of that. And, you know, the, the thing that they don't give us credit for um, is Fox is really a platform that has m- multiple voices. You know, you got your Tuckers, you have the Libertarians like me, you have your Juan Williams of the world, you have Donna Brazil's, and, and they try, we try to find the best people that represent each viewpoint, and you're not told what to say. And so uh, that's never covered, of course, but I, I think part of it is competition. But I also think number two is is disdain for that middle of the country, yeah. those voiceless people. I, I, yeah, I definitely think that. I want to talk also because I know a lot of the work that you've done, uh, really going back years, uh, has been in talking to people that, that are not part of like the bubbles. And so I want to get to all that also. But in terms of the media, one of the things I've noticed is that if you can watch CNN, for example, uh, where yeah. I used to work uh, before you and I worked together at The Blaze, and yeah. it, it used to be a place where every show felt sort of unique, right? You'd have Aaron Burnett, right. and they would, they would be focused on this, and then Anderson Cooper, and then we'd have Piers, or we'd have Don Lemon. You watch CNN now, and, and really for the last four years, um, and, and I would say this is a microcosm for the entire media, there's this, this consistency to it. it it's, it's, there's like one story that's important, and it's covered across the entire network. And and right. and. and it feels like people may not like, you know, what Fox thinks is important, but it doesn't right. feel like there's that same thread of consistency on Fox News. It, it, you know, depending, like you can go from Tucker, like you said, or to Hannity or there, there's different stories bubble up depending on who the host is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, well, it feels like and look, I, I never worked. Uh, at those networks, but I, I appeared on them a lot. And I, I know how producing is done. And 
it seems to me that they were so focused on individuals and crafting their POVs before they even got on air. And uh, there is no one at Fox giving the marching orders, right? There is no one saying, hey, go on air and say this. Whereas on the other networks, that really happened. There is this sense of this unified uh, front of we're going to tackle this today. That doesn't happen. Uh, you know, last week when I was covering primetime, you may have noticed that there were different stories in primetime. You know, I focus on something, Tucker focused on something, Sean and Laura, we had different things. And even if we covered the same story, we, we came from different angles. You know, one of the things that I try to do is, you know, make every story personal. Um, take my experience in the field and relate it back to the audience. How does it affect you? You know, uh, Tucker is going to take on the culture war, right? Sean is going to take up the politics of day and whether it's the conservative movement. You know, that that is, that's because that is what each person, each anchor specializes in. That is what makes them them. And, you know, the, you know, look, I don't want to bash the other networks, but they don't do that. There, there's not a, a, a network of individuals. It is us as, as as a collective. This is CNN's position. This is why I hate when people say Fox News said this. There is no Fox News said anything because there's different personalities that have different pers- perspectives on each topic. Uh, but of course, that's not covered. Right. Right. Now, instead, we get uh, really you talk about this is Fox News position. One of the positions of those who want to I mean, I hate using the word cancel Fox, but but certainly (laughs) there's been a push of what I'd call anti-speech activism in the media, among uh, others in the media, as well as uh, Democrats in Congress and Mm -hmm. and other sort of political actors to talk to cable providers and try to get them to, you know, whether it's not necessarily remove Fox News because that's unrealistic, but to punish them in some way or to account for why they they put them on the air. Uh, what do you think of this drift? Because it's, it's always sort of been there, but it feels like it's getting worse. Yeah, I, I, I think that's council culture. And I would caution even those people that I disagree with and may disagree with me on the issue. Council culture is a wildfire. I tell people all the time that when you pour gasoline in this fire, don't be surprised when it rages against you one day, because there is no blueprint to council culture. It is constantly changing. And as a you know, a free speech peers, I understand that I'm on the extreme end of it. I want as much speech as possible, even when I disagree with people. As someone that goes out there and interviews people, I've interviewed a lot of people that I disagree with. I've, I've di- interviewed people that are a part of hate group because I think it's essential. I've interviewed parents of, of killers and because it's essential to get the story. And I also think there is one aspect of pushing people into silos, which I think is even more dangerous when, when it's someone that you disagree with. Um, the problem with this is, you know, on one part, they will say these are hateful people, but that's not where we're going to right now. It's that I disagree with people. If I disagree with them, then it has to be hateful. It has to be racist. It has to be against what we accept as our new value system. And I, I just think it's re- very dangerous. And one example is Ellen DeGeneres. She was known 
for counseling people, especially maybe they had past homophobic comments, which were distasteful, and the person apologized, and she still wanted them to be counseled. Well, people digged up dirt on her, yeah. and they counseled her. And, you know, they did dirt on her friend Kevin Hart, who had said some homophobic things in the past, but he apologized for it. But she came to his defense because that was her friend. <laughs> it, it cannot be the standard of if someone is my friend or someone that I disagree with or if I find someone is uh, acceptable. It has to be a united front saying, listen, even if I disagree with someone, they have a right to say what they want to say. Now, if the market decides, hey, look, I don't want to listen to them, the ratings suffer as a result of that and as a result, they're canceled from the network or contracts aren't renewed because of that. That's one thing. But if someone has a voice and a following, it is our job to protect their right as an American to say whatever the hell they want to say. Right. Yeah, I, it's that, that's an interesting example because I, I I wonder if we're reaching this sort of aha moment because you're right. Like Ellen DeGeneres can say, "Look, I know Kevin Hart. He's not a you know a hateful person." So so what he said, you know, we have to cut him some slack. But like. Okay, let's extrapolate that out. Shouldn't that be the the standard that we do for everybody at this right. point? Like, is when is are we going to reach this point of understanding that this is what we have, like what we should do? This sort of compassion and grace should be shown to other people that you know we don't personally know because they're not necessarily bad people because they've occasionally said something that is controversial. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and, and you know, I, I I think Hollywood. If if we were honest about it. The people that should that that really started to discover this in Hollywood first were the, were the comedians. The comedians, the real comedians, realized that they couldn't go on college campuses anymore. They couldn't, uh, you know, the, the, the left uses this word safe space. Comedy used to be this safe space to get, you know, jokes across without having any boundaries. And when the comedians started to be attacked. They just decided they weren't going to do things. That's why you, you see this. Dave Chappelle left for a minute. He just now got back on the scene, who is my, who I think is the best storyteller, because he doesn't care. Yeah, he goes after everybody. He It is his job to make you uncomfortable. Um, and the comedians really sounded the alarm on this. But, you know, Hollywood tried to counsel them, too. Yeah. You, you describe yourself as a free speech purist. Uh, I'm yeah. curious, what, how do you define that? What do you what do you think that entails? Like how 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 pure <laughs> would you would you say that you are on that? I actually believe that even hate speech should be protected as long as you're not inciting um, a riot or and, you know, uh, making threats based on the Constitution. I believe that it should be protected. I'm not going to go after the case, even though I think they're these these people are hateful. Um, I'm a weirdo in the sense of I actually want to talk to these people. I, like, <laughs> I want to get in their head. What do you why do you believe what you believe? Yeah. Um, and that that's how. I, and, but, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I, I'm sure that's not a shocker to people. I just I don't believe in suppressing viewpoints that I disagree with. The shift to digital and the rise of social media. What's Jones's own media consumption habits like? Let me ask you so that some of the some of the work you're doing with Fox now. Um, one mm-hmm. of them is uh, kind of a mean one, I would say, is is your work at Fox Nation, and yeah. Fox Nation's really been uh, on the rise, I would say, in terms of the yeah. focus. At least I don't know the numbers necessarily, but the focus um, at Fox News broadly. I think that you know maybe they see, uh, like I would say, everyone else uh, across the media spectrum, the writing on the wall about where the industry's headed. Uh, what, what do you think about the the move to digital and 
and and working on a platform that does seem more like the future than maybe the traditional legacy media of Fox News proper? You know, it's interesting because everyone is anticipating the, the day where everyone cuts the cord. Um, we just don't know when. Um, and that's why I find myself working on multiple platforms, whether it's Fox News, Fox Business, and Fox Nation. And what, what I've realized is that my audience on Fox Nation is much different on the channel. That You know, it's... Listen, I, I, the way I look at this, this stream of information is, you know, it's kind of like energy, you know, oil and gas, you know, clean coal, you know, you got, um, you know, w- wind turbines and all that. We need all of them. Uh, if, if, if there's a point where we can safely and, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, do it the smart way to cut the cord, then yeah, so be it. But right now, different people consume different information um, from different platforms. And, you know, the, the, what I enjoy about Fox Nation is that, you know, so often because of TV and, and the time that we have, I don't have the opportunity to put all my packages, all the meat that I want out there because there's just not enough time. Right. Fox Nation gives it that opportunity for you to see everything where you can, where you're not restricted by commercial breaks and all that. So you're right from the sense of there will be that day where um, digital takes over, but none of us knows the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's your own kind of media consumption habits like? Uh, are, are you a, you know, someone who sits down and turns on a quote TV and, and watches it that way? Are you more of a, you know, a streaming kind of person? Um, oh, man. So I, I watch all the networks TV wise. Um, you know, I, I for stuff like Bill Maher and stuff like that, I normally see his clips. Yeah via, you know, social and all that. So uh, most of my TV shows, just because I travel so much, uh, I watch on my phone or my iPad on planes. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a matter of where, where I'm at. And I think a lot of people are like that. You know, there was a study done at one point that a lot of people watch YouTube videos with the volume off, you know. So I, I, I'm one that consumes information from all of the platform just by nature of what I do, I'm always on the go. So if I'm home, then I'll get the opportunity to watch the TV channels and see what's happening. Um, you know, but if I'm not, then I'm, I'm watching stuff on the go from digital streams. Yeah. Yeah. How about social media? Because, yeah, you mentioned like YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, Twitter. I know you're very active on Twitter. We've got, you know, Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook and, and all of these social accounts are... I. I I think about it a lot, like particularly with Twitter, where it's like w- there's certainly a double-edged sword to Twitter. I mean, it, I think it's, mm-hmm. things are people are finding, like you mentioned, clips or or little moments much more than they maybe would if 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 they are a cord cutter. Uh, yeah. But but what are they actually getting? What kind of are they getting the context and nuance that it first appeared? And if not, what, what's the cycle that we're starting? Uh, what do you think of the way social media has affected the media more broadly? Oh, it's lethal, man. Like, uh, I mean, most of the articles that are written about me are because someone has taken some clip and posted it uh, on online and it doesn't give the full context of what I've said. You know, <laughs> last week I did this interview, um, this monologue discussing 
you know, what was happening with HR1 and, you know, the impacts of these tech companies with, um, you know, wanting to have cheap labor or foreign labor. Uh, but I also talked about how they didn't send a letter talking about the dreamers and have that. This has nothing to do with securing the border and all this. And of course, the articles is Lawrence Jones is against dreamers. I was like, I didn't even talk about being against dreamers. I was trying to make a larger point. You knew that, but you decided to take a clip and get people outraged. Um, and I think that's part of the disinformation campaign against Fox particularly. And I, I'm not saying it's exclusive to us because I think social media is doing this to a lot of folks. Um, and, but, you know, it's, it's part of the reason why I enjoy my Instagram uh, and I, I, that's my favorite platform because I, I really don't do a lot of political stuff on my Instagram. It's like showing me at the gym or me being the foodie I am, showing my personality, talking about cultural stuff, because I think part of the reason why there is these these different perceptions of people is because we don't get to know the person um, themselves. Yeah. We, we, we look at their politics and their POVs and we say that is them. Well, it's not them. You know, the amount of times I've sat on the plane and, you know, I'm having this great conversation with this person. And eventually, at the end of the conversation, you know it's coming. Where do you work at? And I go down, I'm like, I'm in news. And then it's like, oh, okay, where do you work at? Oh, yeah, I work for Fox Corp. And then finally it gets to Fox News. And they're like, I thought I liked you. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You say you liked me before you figured out where I worked at and you thought I was reasonable and all this, but now you don't like me because of where I work. It's, it's just insane. Um, and I, I think social media has done this damage um, that we're going to have to be intentional in repairing. You know, I, I hate that I have to do it for my work, but I think there are platforms like Instagram that highlight uh us as personalities at holistically, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned uh, <laughs> Instagram is definitely better, I would say, than Twitter for, for yeah. sure. I, I, although, you know, talking to people like a one-on-one, you know, IRL is like the best way to sort of change perception, I feel like, about, exactly. about people, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it's funny because you're, you're a Texan. Uh, you grew up in Texas, right? And, and now, right. You, yeah. now you live in New York. How has it been just your day-to-day interaction with people who don't share the same political point of view. Obviously with the pandemic, that kind of throws a wrench into it. But have you noticed a more like, like the acceptance of points of view that are different in Texas versus in New York? Oh yeah. It's awful here when it comes to accepting points of views, but I try to win people over with food. You know, that's like the Texan in me, like, (laughs) let's go out and eat. So I spent a lot of times like with these new friends that I've gathered who are all hardcore liberals. Um, but I force them to look at stuff differently through just having like simple conversations and the politics coming afterward. But I, I think part of the problem is that what I've learned about New York is that many of the people have these perceptions of the world. Like, you know, the, the what they think about Texans is just like, dumbfounding to me like i like i i I was there my entire life born and raised and you would think they know texas more than i do (laughs) and it's just because of what's been showed to them by the media where they hear in these sound bites and you know they think texas is like this big racist place and i'm like 
have you been to Texas? Like, we're the most loving people. Like, we will invite you, give our shirts off our back. And it's it's, it's interesting being in New York. I always told people, you know, I would never move here, but I got sucked into this media bubble. And uh, (laughs) here we are. I had to surrender my guns before I got here. Yeah, you and I have sort of opposite experiences because, uh, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, uh, lived in in New York City for a while and then moved down here uh, to Dallas uh, in 2014. I've been here ever since. And yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely noticed the same sort of thing. I I think people are like, oh, you know, some people think everyone in Texas and I know I realize Dallas proper is kind of right. you know 50 50 maybe a little even right. more, more blue than red um but lots of people are you know disagreeing and having and having a great time chatting about things and then moving on and being friends uh and yep. it's not the same kind of thing that happened on the east coast right right it, 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 I, I think there's such a silo here um listen i i have this thing in me though that i'm not gonna let people hate me <laughs> like i it's just not that it's not that big a deal. I'll buy you a drink and let's drink and have a good time and let's cut the political conversation. You know, something surprising I got when I did my special on One Nation and I lived in this building that has like a, you know, a, a, like a little small meeting area where you can host movies and stuff. And all my liberal friends end up throwing me a surprise viewing party of my special. So, again, look, I don't want to bash New York too much. I think people are open to change, but it's based on the person and how you tackle it. So they kind of shocked me with that because they like, look, we obviously disagree with some of your politics, but we're supporting you as a person. So that was, that was lovely. Well, that's good. That's good. Good to hear that. Uh, Before we get to kind of your, your background, uh, Mm -hmm. you're also, in addition to Fox Nation, uh, getting a lot of run at at Fox News. You hosted an hour, uh, 7 p.m. Fox News uh, Prime. it, it, I guess that was back in f- early March, uh, and now last I, week, yeah, yeah, and now I'm told that you'll be doing it again April 12th uh, week, so that's coming up. Uh, what do you think of the opportunity there to kind of put your your own uh, stamp on an hour of uh, of uh, you know right near prime time? You know, dude, to be honest with you, it's been a wild experience. Um, you know. This wasn't something that I put my name out there for. Like, hey, I want to be at the 7 p.m. Like, I, I've been growing so much and learning different things. Of course, I have aspirations one day to get this opportunity, but I, I was really surprised when it took place. Um, and I really enjoyed the experience. It, it showed me, you know, it's one thing to be co-hosting and, you know, be a part of an ensemble, but to have control of a full hour is is a big responsibility. Yeah, and I wanted to, you know, every story I, I I kept telling my producers it needs to go back to the audience. Why do they care about this this story? And we're not just going to complain about stuff. Like, what can they? People right now want they want hope. They need something to get them out of this funk. And they want solutions. And I try to let my guests talk, but I want them to get away from the talking points and give me something to deliver to my audience. And it has been such a growing experience. I'm I'm excited that they're going to give me another opportunity to do it. And, you know, man, I know the bosses. Th- this is their decision about the 7 p.m. or 
you know, what, what they're going to do with my future and all that. Um, but I'm not too worried about it. Like, I, I have enjoyed this journey. Uh, I'm a man of faith. And what's, what's going to happen is going to happen. Um, I'm just grateful for our audience for, for, for sticking with me and giving me that, that confidence. You know, there's so many narratives uh, about Fox News, but Fox News is allowing a 28-year-old black man <laughs> to try out for the 7 p.m. show who's a libertarian. <laughs> who is going to disagree with Republicans and push back on guests and everything. So, you know, all these narratives that is written about us, um, there was no headline about that. There was no headline. Uh, if I was at CNN or MSNBC, I would be written about oh, for sure. because of that. It, w- it would be praised that they're taking this chance on this minority Um and there is there's no coverage of that. But anyway, the audience knows. And it, it, it's, it's a pleasure to do this. From working for Barack Obama's campaign to working with James O'Keefe, that's next. But first, it's time for another edition of How Did This Get Published? Recently, in a bit of political posturing, Senator Ron Johnson demanded the entire COVID relief bill, all 628 pages of it, be read aloud before the vote. A delay tactic? Not really. More a purposeful, annoying display of how lengthy the bill is and full of things that are not directly related to COVID relief. This bothered many on Twitter and in the media, including Philip Bump of the Washington Post, a reporter whose general shtick is to use data to inform his resistance bait political articles. So he wrote a piece on what the, quote, delay caused, and here's how he portrayed it on Twitter. Ron Johnson's forcing the Senate to read the COVID relief bill won't change the outcome, but it will delay passage. During that delay, nearly 1,400 Americans may die of the virus. The original tweet, by the way, is instructive because, well, he said that nearly 1,400 Americans may die of the virus in the initial headline. The current headline reads nearly 900 Americans because the initial estimate for how long it would take to read the bill was wrong. It actually took just under 11 hours. His opposition derives from the amount of money involved, a point he reinforced during a speech on Wednesday evening by noting that a stack of $1.9 trillion bills would reach well into space, wrote Bump. Those 880 dead bodies also occupy a lot of space. Journalism or something. What Bump is doing is very simple. He's taking the current rate of daily COVID deaths and assigning that rate as a unit of measurement. Of course, we can apply this unit of measurement to anything we want. How many Americans may die while Congress decided to focus on impeachment before they got around to the COVID bill? Between the time the reading took place and the bill actually getting approved by the House and then later President Biden, how many Americans died while we were waiting? How many Americans may die while Philip Bump sends his tweets? This morbid and hyperbolic framing also says nothing about the way the headline uses, quote, may, which sort of invalidates the entire exercise. It also ignores the fact that people who are dying with COVID are doing so, on average, weeks after they first get COVID. And it also ignores the bill itself, which will certainly help our efforts to fight COVID, but is centered around the direct payments to Americans, which is great, but has nothing to do with stopping new Americans from dying with COVID. It's all an exercise in journalistic sleight of hand, in emotion over journalism. The Washington Post, how did this get published? 
More with Lawrence in a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Lawrence Jones. Let's go back in time. Uh, so you and I were working together at, at The Blaze, I think it was like mm-hmm. 2014, 2015. Um, but before that, I, I, I didn't even realize this, you were getting press way back in uh, 2012, uh, shortly mm-hmm. after you uh, graduated high school. Uh, the Dallas yeah. Observer wrote about the fact that uh, you were uh, a freshman in college, double majoring, political science, criminal justice, and running for office. Uh, so, uh, what, what brought that up and and tell me about that experience and even just the experience of the getting media coverage sort of that early on in your, what ultimately became career. Dude, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, (laughs) I I mean, I, I went from being this Democrat activist working on campaigns when I was 15, also playing basketball at the time to my senior year of high school saying, uh, hey, mom and dad, like, I don't want to play basketball anymore. I want to do politics full time. And I'm like, what? How are you going to pay for school now? Like, you're just going to leave scholarships on the table. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do it anymore. And I started um, working for uh, Dallas County Juvenile Court. And the su- superintendent of schools decided to hire me as a student advocate. So I was fighting for kids in the courtroom that I felt like needed a second chance while still attending high school at the time. So the time that I dedicated to basketball, um, I dedicated to that now. And, you know, as I was doing, I said, you know what, something needs to change in our education system. Like we're getting this all wrong. And so I decided my freshman year of high school to run for school board. And um, I lost, which is the worst feeling in the world. I hate losing, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, I, I just hate it. Like, I, I, it's, it was the worst thing to me. But I learned so much from that experience. I learned how politics really operates, how grimy it can be. And I said, you know, uh, I probably won't run for office again after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, move on to, to other things. Well, you mentioned this, and uh, I know you've talked about this before, but you, for, mm-hmm. our, for our listeners here, uh, when you were 15, talked about that, that was when uh, President Barack Obama was first elected. You helped, you know, essentially work on mm-hmm. his campaign. Uh, what... what Tell me about the, you know, the transition. What, what led to the, the shift uh, in, in sort of supporting candidates like uh, Barack Obama uh, to where you've, you now fall, obviously, libertarian, yeah. not necessarily Republican, but, but that direction? Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, when I, I, was, I, was, I was quite the precocious, like, child. Like, I was so fired. I was Obama's number one fan. And, you know, they had this strategy when— um, the former president won that they were going to take all these young leaders. You know, I wasn't the only kid that was working for them. They had a bunch of us all across the country and they were going to have us run for office. They were going to have us, you know, kind of be like what AOC is doing. That plan started years ago when I was younger. And, um, you know, I was going to all these conferences in DC, but every time I brought up issues that, were specifically impacting Black America, I felt this dismissal. 
And it was always, you know, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. And I honestly, it was infuriating. Um, and it was during that period of time, I was like 16. And that's what I'm when I met Donna Brazil, uh, who's now my colleague at Fox News, who used to run the DNC. And she was like the mother hen. And she talked about how she had been dealing with this at the time with Democrats for years. And, you know, but, you know, this was our this was essentially our only option right now is to work with the the Democratic Party. I rejected that. I rejected that, honestly. And, you know, me and her have a great, friendly relationship. And she said, she always asked me, am I, am I happy? Because later, when people I did go to the Republican Party at one point and then got upset with the Republican Party because all the stuff that they were preaching was like, okay, what happened to the balanced budget amendment? What happened to fighting for liberty? The, the, the life uh, unborn? Like, where are you on these issues? A lot of campaign promises, but not delivery. And so eventually after that, I end up being, um, you know, just a libertarian and, you know, this is why politicians really don't like coming on the show sometimes because it's like, you know, just don't give me talking points. Give me something that you're going to deliver on. I want to see the legislation. Why hasn't it passed through committee? And I made a commitment that I wouldn't be friends with politicians. There there are plenty of, there's some of them that I, I respect and I think, are good, decent people. But I think when when us in media start to make them our friends, even if there's someone that we, you know, agree with most of the time, they always let you down. Most of the time they let you down. And at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they can to get reelected. And to save yourself from that heartbreak and from being in that position of choosing the audience or the politician um, I'm not friends with the guys. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not friends with them. Yeah. That's a good rule. And, and I also think, you know, mentioned someone like Donna Brazil, who I also agree. I think she's, she's a great, you know, great person and, you know, may mm-hmm. disagree politically, but certainly can, uh, can find common ground there, uh, with, with yep. all kinds of people, which is great. Um, it, it, something else, uh, that, that the, the Dallas Observer wrote about, uh, back mm-hmm. in November, 2013, actually you were the, the freedom works activist of the year, uh, in yeah. 2013. Part of that was your work with James O'Keefe at Project Veritas. Uh, this was way back yeah. in the days if people remember of uh, Acorn. Uh, yeah. so, so tell me about that experience. What was that like? Because he's obviously gone on in, in, in a different you know, path. Project Veritas has done some great work and some work I would say has not been so great. Um, but I do think that was like very early on in the process. And it was like a shock to people that he was getting this kind of, um, you know, reporting out. Yeah, it was interesting because when I was in college, I ended up... Um, going on to get my license in private investigation. And I was speaking um, at a conference at Freedom Works, and I guess one of James' operatives were, was in the crowd or something like that. And I was talking about, this is what the left is doing. This is what, you know, th- this is the legal stuff that they're getting away with. Anyway, the guy ended up ho- ho- hooking me up with O'Keefe, and he said, you know, we ha- we've been getting all these tips that, there's this fraud going on in Obamacare. And at that time, I think I was a sophomore in college. And, you know, I was fascinated. And I was also very upset with the Democratic Party at that point, you know, because I had left the party. But I still had, like, all my, like, logins and stuff like that with the operatives. So I just had 
you know, fell off the scene. They didn't know that I had turned to being like this right wing winger and all that. Anyway, so I started going to back to these groups and they were it was right when Obamacare had launched and they were they had this program called the Navigators program. And the navigators were responsible for going out there and signing people up for the Obamacare. Well, we, we, we discovered that when they would sign you up for Obamacare, they were saving that information to update their voter rolls, right? Because these were 501c3s that also had alliances with the Democratic Party. So they got that, you know, that 501c3 money to sign people up through the Navigators program, but they were also saving um, that data. And for people that don't know, those voter rolls and, and making sure it's up to date with people's personal information is a lucrative business. Like that is what matters in election. If you can contact voters and making sure you have the right information, the right, um, you know, addresses and all that type of stuff. So they had, you know, fresh data because it was their medical data. <laughs> it was the stuff that was supposed to be protected. Anyway, worked my way up um, into the organization and it was, uh, the chief organization was called Enroll America. Well, I convinced the director of communications to sell me the information. Um, and the guy, and I, and the reason why I told him, I said, listen, this election is going to be tough. If we, if we want to turn Texas blue, this was back then, it was called Battleground Texas, uh, how to flip Texas blue, um, then I need this information. Either you're you know, a team player or you're not. The guy who is their communication director agrees to sell me the information, and that was the smoking gun that was eventually aired on O'Reilly. And that was my first intro into media right there. The Fourth Watch lightning round is coming up, but first, what Jones learned while covering the social unrest around the country last year. All right, I want to talk to you uh, before we kind of get to the uh, the final lightning round a little bit about some of the work that you do because you know before you got to Fox and certainly since you've been at Fox, one of the things I think that's that's really stood out from from your work is uh, going and talking to people. Right? It's it's not mm-hmm. sitting in a studio. It's not uh, you know reporting necessarily even um, you know like at the border, which I think you've done some great work as well. But it's it's going in and interviewing everyday people uh and talking yeah. to them even even most recently i think at, C- at cpac uh, uh last yeah. month so so what, what do you what have you learned in in doing that particularly recently about where things are uh with the country with with you know the, the kinds of people that you're talking to um let's start there and then i want to know kind of specifically about for the media um i think we're more alike than we give ourselves credit um, you know, I talk to liberals, I talk to um, conservatives, and what is clear is that there's a lot of grievances. And I think both sides' grievances typically aren't respected by the other, right? And, you know, it's intended that way by the politicians because they, they have they figured out the secret sauces continue to let these things be an issue um, and I solve it, and then we have something to run on every single year. And, you know, it really started to connect. I mean, dude, I've, I've done a lot of growing, you know, especially over the summer. It was really tough for me because, you know, I had to compare my personal experience and then go on air and, and try to navigate, you know, the racial tension in the country at the time 
and the people that wanted to heal America, but there was also a segment that didn't understand what was actually going on. And so, you know, I couldn't be afraid at that point. I just had to do what I felt was right. And it really made me grow because one of my fears, and I tell people all the time, is being poor again. You know, my mom had me at 17 years old. My dad married her at the time. Um, and, and we grew up poor. Hmm. And there was this fear of not returning to that. So sometimes I would water down content, not be dishonest, but water it down because I wanted to stay in this safe position. And no one makes it plan it safe. You cannot play it safe. You can be fair, truthful, honest, but you can't play it safe. And this summer made me grow up because I had to, there was no one to hold my hand, Steve. I had to, the audience was expecting me to give them clarity on what was happening in the country. So fast forward. Part of the problem is that Black America and a lot of people in the street, let's separate them from the violent protesters that were setting things on fire, right. were saying, listen, we feel this way. And it's not even the people in the street. You got a senator like Tim Scott saying, look, I've been stopped in the Capitol seven times. They told me they don't even know who I am. There's only 100 senators. I have my Senate pin on, and I've been profiled in the in the Capitol. There is an issue. I'm not saying this is the majority of cops, because the majority of them do their job. 95%, 96% of them do what they're supposed to do. But there is this segment that make me feel differently, that I'm treated differently. I know this to be true. This is not a figment of our, my imagination. I am a conservative. I am a Republican. But this is happening to me. A lot of people saw what happened to George Floyd Say, I understand what's happening in the streets today. We're protesting for freedom. Okay, right. But then there was this turn. People started to set things on fire, um, you know, um, you know, anarchists took advantage of it. BLM um, started to make have their own agenda that what weren't associated with the people in the streets of saying our life matter. And I went on air and I said, you know, we have to be able to separate the plight versus what the, the bad actors are doing in the street. Now, fast forward to the Capitol, right? You had a lot of people that felt like the election was stolen from them. Whether you agree or disagree, that was their plight. Much like people in the street this summer saying, look, we felt like we're being targeted unfairly. That was their plight. They said, And then you had these violent people, crazies that decided they were just going to storm the Capitol, right? And then you had the people in the audience that are saying, look, listen, we... We're not the bad actors. We were they're peacefully assembling, saying we feel like we were done wrong and that there is injustice in the system based on the way they change voter rolls and irregularities and all that. And do not lump us in with the violent people. And I said, you know what? This theme really rings true to me. It is the same as the people that were in the street over the summer. The fact of the matter is that. Both sides weren't looking at each other in the same way. And that's when I started to really start to see, you know, we're so much alike. And if we could just acknowledge whether we agree or disagree with each other's plight and separate the bad actors from the people that have legitimate grievances, then we can start 
talking about this stuff and moving forward as a country. But until we start looking at each other as, as Americans, then we're going to be at each other's throats. And so I feel like God has placed me on this earth because I really have the ability to go into any crowd and talk with people. Naturally, it's just like I love talking with people and I don't prejudge people. And it's fascinating to me. And I feel like that's my job at the channel as well, to go out, hear people's stories, and try to bring people together as well. It's a good mission. It's uh, I think talking pe- talking to people is the way we uh, we get out of this divisiveness. I agree. Uh, and so yeah. good to have you there. Yeah. Uh, all right, last thing here: six questions. Try to do it in sixty seconds. Where were Let's you born? Do it. Okay, where were you born? Temple, Texas. All right, you're a host at Fox News at Fox Nation. What's one benefit and one cost of those jobs? One benefit is a lot of great folks that love you. Uh, On the flip side, there's a lot of people that hate you as well. (laughs) Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, Sean Hannity and Dana Perino. All right. Uh, Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Sean Hannity. Uh, They're under the impression that this guy's this hateful person and... You know, I was already working at Fox, but he was the one that spotted me and was like, um, the, you should be out there on the street talking with people and um, has been my biggest supporter at the network ever since. Yeah, that's great. Uh, who is one person in the media that you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Bill Maher. Like, I don't think he gets enough. Att- and there's a lot of stuff that I disagree with him on. But I find him to be very intellectually honest and curious and consistent. I like it. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? One prediction for the media. Um, One year from today, we will know if Donald Trump is going to run for re-election. And the coverage will shift from Joe Biden as the president to Donald Trump again. (laughs) <laughs> their favorite topic <laughs> Lawrence thanks so yep. much for doing this appreciate it <laughs> thanks brother I appreciate you thanks to Lawrence Jones go follow him on Twitter and Instagram where you get non-political content remember Fourth Watch not just a podcast it's also a newsletter you can subscribe at fourthwatch.media comes out three times a week and is free join me let's build a better media together if you like the music in the show as I do check out the artist who created it Super Duper that's Super Duper Music on Instagram the song is Far From Falling Download it wherever you get your music and download and follow and like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, it's on all the platforms. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.